So sometimes there are those books that are, you know, just so hauntingly beautiful or disturbing or touching or all three, really, that you can't stop thinking about them for days after you finally put them down after binge reading them. You know, when I say that, I think about The Handmaid's Tale. Yes, the book, not (laughs) the series. I just like to point that out for everyone who's like, I've seen that. No, the book, the first, that book. The book was amazing. The book. When I first read that book in high school. Wait, wait, wait. It's been around since high school? Margaret Atwood, dude. Yeah. Oh, duh. I just happened to have read it more recently. The book, not the series. Correct. Okay. I read the book. <laughs> Going back to that. <laughs> or Americana, you know, when I'm thinking about books like that, those are the books that come to mind or, or Song of Solomon, right? But recently, you know, I found, we found another book that I've been thinking about ever since putting it down. And that is Beautiful Country. Yes, absolutely. In her debut memoir, which she started writing in 2016 while on the subway on her iPhone, which is incredible, right? Amazing. Xian Julie Wong tells the story of being an undocumented seven-year-old who arrives in JFK, which is in New York, in 1994 with her parents from northern China. And she talks about all the wonders and heartbreak and life that happens as you come of age in a country that has expressly shown you that you do not belong in so many ways. And so we were incredibly honored to talk with her because talking to her was like seeing this book come to life. And we didn't just stop with a book. So you need to listen in to hear about Beautiful Country, which is one of my top books of the year. And also so much more that we discuss in this conversation that we did not want to see end. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Okay. Fully fangirling about the best book I have read in a very, very long time. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience? Hi, everyone. I'm Chen Julie Wong, and I'm the author of Beautiful Country, a memoir. I started reading this book, and honestly, it was really, really hard to put it down because the way you write is not only beautiful, but it really draws the reader in. And yet at the start of the book, it sounded like it might not have been written at all. And so could you talk a little bit about 2016 and what led you to sort of start taking notes in your iPhone and then transformed into writing this book? And also congrats on being the September book in Jenna Bush's book list, by the way. It's incredible. And fresh off the presses from 7 p.m. last night, Beautiful Country is number three on the New York Times. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it feels incredibly surreal. I feel like I've just been hallucinating for the past week. Just fine. I'm I'm very happy with this (laughs) dream walk that I'm doing. But I immigrated to New York City in 1994 at age seven, and I did not become a citizen until May 2016. So that was... 22 years after I first stepped foot in this country and became what I believe to be a true American. And it was in my swearing in ceremony when a video of President Obama played in front of the courtroom when he greeted everybody in that room as fellow Americans that I felt something come unearthed in me. It was the first time I realized just how badly I needed to be called American all of those years and how no one had ever ascribed that term to me, much less the president of the United States. 
And of course, going in then to the November 2016 election became a very different experience. I think a lot of the rhetoric about undocumented immigrants was not new. It was just kind of kicked up a notch. And watching those debates and reading the national discourse, I felt that I was now coming at everything from a position of privilege and thus responsibility. I realized that I was actively choosing to stay quiet about my undocumented years, whereas millions of undocumented immigrants to this day do not have the luxury of that choice. So I felt like the secret that I believed once to be singularly mine was no longer mine to keep. And it was with that realization that I started examining the years that I never let myself think about, talk about, admit to. And I should say that I wasn't under any illusion that I was going to speak on behalf of all immigrants or all undocumented immigrants. Everyone has a very unique immigration story. Everyone has particular circumstances that cause them to end up in the United States. What I had wished to do was one, erode some of the stigma around the status, two, give light to the very human conditions and realities behind the headlines and political talking points, and three, hopefully awaken citizened Americans to the idea that we are all not so different behind labels and national origin. But primary of all that in the entire writing process the reader that I had in mind to the extent I ever allowed myself to think about anybody reading this or dare to believe that I could finish this book was that little girl wandering around the public library, feeling lost and lonely. And how wonderful would it be if she came upon my book and found some source of hope or joy, or just the understanding that she was not alone. So it is for that little girl that I wrote the book. And I'm just so glad that now it is actually out in the world, which I did not think was possible. I think about the beginning of the book, right? And it starts with you and your mother coming to New York in the 1990s. And I honestly had a hard time with placing it in the 1990s at first, because I feel like so much of the immigration in heavy quotes, stories that we hear about or taught about in school or talked about decades and centuries prior than my own family's immigration stories from the 1960s when my dad came to the U.S. But I would love for you to talk a little bit about that time in New York. What stood out to me is your father insisting that you tell everyone at school that you were born in America and also the shopping trips, right? Because at that age, you were, well, how old my kids are now. So I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about those, those moments. Yeah, the book really opens with the marker that I have in my mind of the before and after of my childhood and really my life. Before I boarded that plane, I was just a typical kid in North China. I fit in. Everyone else looked like me. I never worried where my next meal was going to come from. I was always around friends and family. I felt incredibly safe to the extent that safety and security was really taken for granted. When we disembarked at JFK Airport in 1994, I quickly became aware that everything, absolutely everything was about to change. And first and primary was that I was seeing people of different colors with different eye colors. I didn't even know that blue eyes were possible, that they existed. And then had to realize that 
I was now part of a racial minority and all that came with that status. And then of course, right before I started school, my father sat me down and said, you have to pretend that you've always been here. We can't attract any attention at all. And because I was a sneaky kid, I also eavesdropped on my parents' conversation. We lived in one room, so it was very easy to do. And I heard them saying, we don't have these documents. We have to do this in this, this way, and we can't apply for these jobs. And I was so confused because I was not aware of having documents in China. I didn't know what that meant. But what I could pick up, as you'll know from your children, is that is the emotional energy of my parents And I could very much feel that we were in danger and it felt like we were in danger at all times. And then I realized, oh, that's because of the secret pertaining to documents that I don't understand. So I have to keep the secret because my parents are terrified. And with that secret and the need to keep that secret came over time, a sense of shame. If my status and my family's status was something to be kept quiet then there was something wrong with it. And therefore there was something wrong with me. And as I lived on in New York City, I heard more and more the term illegal debated and mentioned. And yeah, that sense of shame as I came of age grew with me and I grew around it and it became embedded in my sense of self. And I think really you don't have to be an immigrant to understand this. Anyone who had to keep a secret early in life understands what it does to a child. It immediately removes that childlike sense of openness, of authenticity, of vulnerability, because you feel like you have to put on armor and shields to hide this shameful core, whatever the source of that might be. You succeeded in bringing the humanity of the story to me, at least. And I see you in the acknowledgement section of your book, you focus on the positive people, the inspirations, but how do you feel now going back to that fifth grade teacher about the people who judge immigrants, who judge Asian kids, who judge poor people. Like, what would you want to say now to people who might be catching themselves doing that and being like, maybe I need to think differently before I do this? As tempted as I am to respond to their judgment with judgment, and which in my younger years I did a lot, I don't think that's the cure for being judgmental and not being able to express empathy. I try to think about things from their perspective And think about how the structures and systems are the problems that keep them ignorant. When the media is not showing a diversity of stories, when books are not showing a diversity of experience, it's hard for someone who lives in an insular world to understand or even begin to fathom, especially if they're not a minority of some kind or from a marginalized community. It's very hard for them to understand what someone else might be going through and to be doing that perspective shift that So many people of color are very adept at doing. I would also say that those people, and I was fortunate because I have dissident blood and I'm very rebellious. Those people are part of why I did everything that I've done because they told me I couldn't. I said, I have to. Now I have to prove you wrong. And I understand that's not every child's response, and it can be incredibly damaging to a child who internalizes that message. And that's why we need to hold up and value good teachers. They are the backbone of our communities, of our society. They're the front line of defense for low-income children. But for me, in my particular scenario, I would even say thank you. Thank you for adding some fuel to my fire, because 
who knows if you told me I can do whatever I want, maybe I wouldn't have done anything. (laughs) I love that, that perspective. I need to tell my kids that actually is what I was thinking (laughs) the minute you were saying this. Yes to all of that. You know, as I was reading this book, I was thinking about something that we discussed on the podcast a lot, which is the concept of the American dream and whether that exists and whether that's attainable and what it looks like now, as opposed to what it probably people attributed to it centuries, decades, centuries ago. I was a full-fledged believer in the traditional version of the American dream, which goes like this. Someone comes to this country or someone starts out this in this country, very poor and claws their way up in society, mostly measured by material success and wealth and external credentials like Ivy League degrees and all of that. And I fully believed in it until I got all of those things. And I was very grateful and privileged not to worry about being hungry again, but I fully expected once I got there that I would be happy, that I would be at peace. And I was the least happy and least peaceful I may have ever been. And that was when my world came crashing down. I've done all of the right things. What is missing? And what is missing is that that traditional framing really does not account for the fulfilling elements of life and the real human needs. We are not just working machines, although capitalism would like us to think that we are. We need to feel a connection to community, a connection to who we are, where we came from, to our family, to our roots. And when you create a society where people necessarily have to go from one extreme to the other to succeed by the standard definition, you are necessarily removing those people from the roots and communities that supported them, that defined them, that formed their formative years. And it took me a long time to understand this. It took me a very long time to even accept that I had built my career and my life based on a completely misdirected paradigm. So my vision of the American dream is a place where there is no bottom from which to dig up, place where public resources are easily and equally accessible a place where every person, every child, regardless of who they are, how they identify, what they look like, feels safe being their real selves. And they don't have to struggle to succeed in this capitalist ladder where they have to fight between the dichotomy of who they really are and who they're pretending to be. And I know that is very hard to achieve, but to start building a society that meets that we have to be able to envision it first. And if we are framing the American dream as one based solely on capitalism, then we are never going to get anything else. She said it so much better than I've ever said it. I've talked about my own sort of disenchantment with the model of success that we're told about Ivy League. My dad died suddenly when I was 26 and it just shook my world. And it made me realize we don't live forever. And what is the content of life? If it's not measured by money or status, there's got to be something more here because we don't die and take those things with us. So thank you for explaining it in such a a graceful way, because I envision it more clearly now, the alternative model, not just saying no to capitalism, no to the American dream, but what could that look like? I would love to know about being undocumented in America. We want things not that different from what you want, from what drives 
everybody else. We love this country. We are here with all of its barriers and evils. We are still here fighting to be here because this is the only home we can think of for ourselves, conceive of for ourselves. And all we want is to be meaningful, accepted, contributing members of this country. And I really don't think that is so much to ask. If you really see the dimensionality, the humanity behind the words undocumented or worse in the 90s, it was illegal alien, then you can never unsee that, that it is a real child, a real hungry child behind that headline, a desperate mother behind that political debate. And so often we get kind of hung up on the party divide and the terminology. And we forget that these are real people with real lives. And yeah, if it weren't so bad in our home countries, we probably wouldn't risk everything that we have to be here. I just had that. I had a very similar discussion with my seven-year-old about this very concept, because we were also talking about Afghanistan and we were we're recording this, right? It's right after the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And right before that, I was listening to podcasts that were focused on the personal narratives, Afghanis who had helped the United States and were unable to get out and the situations that were happening in Kabul. And then the reactions, and I was listening to the reactions of Americans, right? Sometimes welcoming Afghan refugees into their communities and sometimes not and feeling and having these very big discussions about it. And so I was telling my seven-year-old asking, why do you think people come? How do we treat people? How do we see people? Right. And so I'm curious to hear, especially given your background, what are your thoughts as you're seeing, you know, what's happening with the Afghan refugee situation? I think it's really important to remember why they are coming here to begin with. And if has a lot to do with what our government has done for the past 20 years. We have a real moral imperative and human duty to welcome these refugees in with open arms. Even setting aside the message that America loves sending out in the world that we are this beacon of hope and light and we will take your tired and your poor, which we don't always live up to. Even setting that aside, there is just a humanity to helping your neighbors. Their homes are gone because of something we did. So the next best thing, we can't undo that, right? It's too late, unfortunately. The next best thing is giving them a true home here. And I just hope that Americans are able to live up to that. The promise of what the United States stands for in an international stage after the havoc that our government has reached. And I think that people are really hard to hate up close. You can spew all sorts of ideology and policy and theories, but once you hear stories like the one that you just mentioned on the radio or elsewhere, how can you not remember a time when you too might've felt lost and hopeless and homeless and unsafe? We have all been in that moment at some point, no matter how privileged we are, we have all had those moments. And so once you've see the beating human heart behind this, I think it's just impossible to react any other way. And I'm just very hopeful that we will continue taking in more refugees and that they will be treated with the dignity and kindness that they deserve. I think hearing those personal stories, right? Those, I think you're absolutely right. It's very easy to sort of hate 
something, right? But when you are see the humanity in someone else, and I think about Sarah's heard this story, but I was trying to do special immigrant visa work after people who had helped the U.S. and Iraq. And it was like banging your head against a wall because it was impossible to get people out. And the stories were so heartbreaking that they're unsafe going outside. There's the cafe being bombed across the street. They have kids. They need to get out. And we were not going to help them in the same as a country. And that is what I hope is not going to be our situation now. And so I really thank you for what you said, because I think that is exactly who we should be as Americans, right? If that's the case, but. And I agree with you, our immigration system, the way we process these applications needs to be overhauled. Why is it that a billionaire can just buy a visa and show up and these refugees need to wait while their children's lives are in danger? There's something wrong here. Totally. I feel like we have so many questions to ask you and I'm sorry, because I feel like we're like, you know, let's talk about this and this and this. And by the way, my mother would kill me if I did not mention that she had called me this weekend. I heard about this amazing book. It's called Beautiful Country. Have you heard of this author? She sounds, I heard this interview. I was like, mom, we're going to have her on the podcast. So this might be an episode that my mother listens to of our podcast. So thank you for making my mother's radar. That was one of the themes in your book in some ways, and it's changed now because it's prevalent again. And we had recorded several episodes earlier this year on the anti-Asian violence that has been so prevalent in our country since the start of, well, very obviously prevalent in our country since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, something that's very personal to us. And when I was reading your book, I could see those same sort of hateful tones and how you and your family were sometimes treated in New York or in the objectification by Lao Jim, right, of Asian women. I think about that scene in the McDonald's, but or even the teacher who made assumptions, right, about your intelligence and ability. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this, seeing this now in 2021 and 2020, but having written about these very same themes, right, that were sort of a a constant through your, since you came to the U.S. I'm glad the media is shedding light on anti-Asian hate and violence but I worry that people think it is a new thing and it is a temporary thing that cannot be further from the case. The very first exclusive immigration laws were targeted at Chinese immigrants and specifically Chinese women, and it was called the anti-prostitution law. So you can see how the terminology, the approach there uh, suggests a very prevalent stereotype, the over-sexualized Asian woman that still plagues all of us to this day, we are sitting at the intersection of racism and misogyny. Our race is painted to be the weakest race, the most submissive race that cannot fight back. So when times are hard, which race do you think is going to suffer the brunt of scapegoating? I mean, one of the biggest lynchings in American history was against a group of Chinese immigrants. And yet it's never talked about, it's never acknowledged because mainstream society so wants to paint this picture of model minority to create these divides that really only helps white supremacy. As much as there are cherry-picked examples of successful and wealthy Asian American individuals in our country, in New York City alone, Asian Americans comprise the poorest 
class, the poorest social economic class across the city. There might be a few of us doing very well, but there are many more of us worrying about what we're going to eat for our next meal, scavenging in the trash as I did in the 90s. Things have not changed all that much, unfortunately. I mean, there are days that I walk to my fancy office or my fancy apartment and I see an immigrant Chinese woman with her little daughter going through the recyclables, trying to get those five cent cans. And I'm thinking that's me. That's my shadow life. It's still going on. And while the conversation has changed, I think there has been more awareness, more acknowledgement of these problems. I'm not seeing those structural barriers and problems being directly tackled. I am hopeful though, that with this insurgence and resurgence of passion from especially young AAPI and Asian American individuals that we will really begin to push progress forward. Can I ask you a personal question? Of course. When you just said you see your shadow self, knowing all you went through and where you are now and acknowledging your privileged position now financially, but what does that do to you to see someone still scavenging? It's heartbreaking. It makes me feel like I am back there. And I know that I'm privileged enough that I don't have the same problems anymore, but it is just a simultaneous feeling of gratitude and extreme guilt. Nothing I do can ever be enough because those systemic problems are still there. And while I am dedicating my law practice to that, it cannot nearly move fast enough. And so I feel incredibly divorced, as I suggested earlier, from who I was back then. And I have, I feel this incredible need to go back and heal those communities that I was once part of, but law doesn't move so quickly. Society does not change so quickly. And so I can only hope that I'm continuing to push this ball forward so that things are better and better with each generation. You know, you just mentioned your current work. Can you tell us about that path that took you from New York to Yale at law and then your current work now? Sure. So as I alluded to earlier, after I graduated from Yale and and clerked, I went to a fancy firm because I myself was kind of this open festering wound, still afraid of being poor, still afraid of being hungry one day. And so I thought that if I made a ton of money in this fancy law firm of thousands of lawyers, I would get past that. And there is, I mean, it's not completely unfounded, right? When you're used to having a certain amount of financial stability, you're able to then free up your bandwidth. You have that safety to then look at what's going on emotionally and psychologically. And so it was a long time coming for me, but every day I went to work in my big law firms, I felt incredible, immense guilt. I decided I wanted to be a lawyer at age eight when in the public library, I discovered biographies of Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I said, I was going to be that for immigrants. And then I went and represented Fortune 500 corporations and celebrities making very little difference overall. As wonderful as my clients were, I was not making a dent and not doing anything approaching what Thurgood and Ruth did from the outset of their careers. And I just felt like I lost my way. But the act of writing this book, the act of putting it in the world made me reacquaint myself with that little girl who dreamed so big and thought of lawyers as being these all-powerful entities, which I think it's easy to take for granted now, but it's true. 
we have as lawyers particular insight into how society works, how laws are enacted, what the systemic problems are. And why was I not doing that for the people who needed me most? And so when I was offered partnership in December last year, I turned it down because it was one of those roads of no return. I felt if I continued down that path, it would have been very hard to extricate myself. And I saw what being in that world does to people. And I just didn't want to be like that. But most of all, I wanted to honor that little girl who wanted to follow in Ruth and Thurgood's footsteps. So I founded a firm called Gali Ben Wong LLP with my husband, and we focus on according the same level caliber of legal service as big firms do to marginalized communities, immigrant families, and children with disabilities. And now there is not a day, not a minute when I feel like I'm working because I am truly doing what I was put here to do. And I'm glad that it took me this long, if only because I was able to heal my own wounds and therefore be a better advocate for those still going through, unfortunately, some of the very similar problems that I myself dealt with. I have a a twofold question following up on that, because you said you're now making the difference that you were meant to make, but your parents, like the journey started when your family left China because of the lack of freedom afforded to your father and his work. And I was curious when you talk about mainland China, what's your feeling on the direction China is headed in? And then was it at all frightening to lay out your family's fleeing from China in writing? And we can take this offline if we need to, but I was just really curious about that. That's a great question. It was terrifying. I was, my book came out September 7th. On September 6th, my husband can tell you I was on the floor. I was like, I am crazy. Why did I do this? This does not just implicate me. It implicates my parents. And more than that, it implicates my family who are still in China. What could this do to them? And it doesn't benefit them at all. I was absolutely terrified. And even from the US side, my parents are, we're all legal now but they're still very much afraid of ICE coming after them and trying to deport them for some reason. So it was of huge import to all of us, but every time I doubted myself, and there were many times when I said, I can't write this book. I just can't proceed with this because the risks are too high and it's not even for me, it's for my family, putting them in danger. There was always a voice that kept whispering, you need to do this. You just, you can't be living in that fear. You can't be made afraid to do, to write what you believe and to share the truth. And that's what my dissident uncle would have wanted. He was thrown in prison and starved and tortured for his writing. That was very accurate, but the government did not appreciate it. And I kept coming back to him and thinking this is what he would have wanted. With regard to China and the current state, I have not been back in a long time. I have grandparents still there, but And I have been hoping to go in February, 2020, and that did not work out. So I think the news that we get about China in the U.S. is very filtered. It's filtered many ways through the Chinese lens, but also through the U.S. lens as it's propaganda is bad over there, but I think we have our own version of it. So it's just hard for me to know what the truth is, but I am very concerned about the direction China has taken because not only has it continue to embrace that control of every facet of society. It has now adopted and incorporated capitalism into that, whereas it was always saying it was communist. Now it's just taken the worst of all systems and aggregated it. 
And the Hong Kong protests and issues were happening alongside the George Floyd protests. And I saw distinct parallels between how the government was reacting in each situation. So yeah, I'm deeply concerned about China. And I think we in the US are not so not as different from China as we'd like to think. Yeah, the second it's it's scary to think that, but you I think you're correct in some of that. So given that you left, though, largely for your father to protect his life, basically, and you as a nuclear family and all the hardship that you went through, like, how are your parents feeling about where you're at now? They thought I lost my mind when I turned down partnership. (laughs) They thought I was even crazier when I told them the book deal. I was so nervous about them being afraid of ICE and deportation that I did not give them the full book. They had seen chapters and they kind of knew what was in it. And I had fact checked things with them, but they had not seen the full book until publication day. I brought them each a copy and I said, you don't have to read it. I just want you to have it because now the public has access to it. So you should rightly have access to it. And my thinking there was at least this way, if they read it, there's no counting down to the days that ICE is going to see this book and then come after them. They have it at the same time. And so hopefully that would have assuaged some of those very old fears. I didn't expect them to read it, but the night that they got it, my father texted me and said that he could not put the book down. His vision kept getting blurred from tears, but he had to keep reading because he felt himself healing with every page. And he also said, Anyone with an Asian father will understand how rare this is. He said he was so proud of me and that he had no idea that I was that talented. And But the real gift came last night when I found out about the New York Times bestsellers list. I wasn't sure if I should tell them because I don't know how whether they would like our story being that widespread, but my husband talked me into it. And as usual, he was right. And my dad responded with, don't worry, there's nothing we're afraid of now. And my biggest, craziest, wildest dream for this book was not for it to be on the New York Times best, not for it to be widely published, but for it to bring that sense of healing to my parents who still feel so much shame and guilt and fears over those years. And to also bring that solace and healing in some small part to immigrants out there who are still dealing with it to this day. So if I could do that for my father, given everything that he's gone through, then it will have been worth it. Deepest congratulations. That is incredible. Knowing the dynamic in families like Asian families too, and then feeling the like you moved me with your book. And I feel like, I know we don't know each other. I feel like I know some of your story through it. And to hear you share that that brought some healing to your father. And in the end, it was worth it. That's incredible. And I'm really proud. I'm just so happy for you. That's really, really cool. Me too. I have an Asian father, so I know exactly how difficult, how infrequent that is expressed in that way. And so I am so proud. I read a lot of books and I just the way that in which you were able to tell this story. And as a parent, I'm reading it and feeling these fears for, I'm putting myself in your parents' position and feeling these fears for my kids. And so that just the way that you are able to express humanity in this book 
and that in a way that everyone can relate to, I think is so powerful. So that's number three on the bestseller list is so well-deserved. I am super proud. Thank you so much. That's such high praise too. It means so much to hear that from a parent and just to know that it can resonate. Is there anything, I'm mindful of our time, but is there anything else that we didn't ask that you want to talk about, especially to this particular audience? I think it's worth saying that despite all the difficult events that the book shares and the experiences, at the end, the ultimate goal for this project, in my mind, was to be a celebration of childhood and to celebrate the joys and resilience of children. And I think that if our society can understand and see that joy and resilience in children all around us, it will affect how we educate them, how we speak to them, how we treat them. And that in turn over time will heal much of the social ills that we are now dealing with. It is my hope that this book will resonate with people, even people who have not immigrated, because I am hoping to pull at that universal thread of family, of coming of age, of exploration. So if it can help people understand that the undocumented are really not so different, then that will be a true dream come true. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news, we have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.